Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Actively Speaking. We've got a good show today. We're going to be talking about money. And my guest is Kevin Hebner, Epix Global Investment Strategist, and I think at this point, our uncontested, most frequent guest on Actively Speaking. Welcome, Kevin. Oh, thank you, Steve. So uh, you and Bill Priest wrote a, a paper a couple of months ago that's available on Epic's website. It's called Money 3.0. It's about central bank digital currency. So we thought we would talk about that today. Let's start with the title and, and Money 3.0. So that implies that there was a Money 1.0 and a Money 2.0. So tell us a little bit about what you, in your mind, uh, what this latest generation of money means and how it compares to previous generations of money. Yeah, starting from a historical perspective, the earliest currencies included things like whale's teeth in Fiji and, and rice in Japan. You know, on the East Coast uh, in North America, the native tribes used wampum beads, which are made from the shells of clams and sea snails and things like that. And they're quite skillful to put these things together, but they were used for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, they continue to be used for quite a while, even after the first Europeans arrived, well into the, the 17th century. So we've got these things which people often call commodity currencies, a bit in jest. But in terms of things that we would recognize as currencies, during the Bronze Age, which is the period before 800 BC, people did have pieces of metal, pieces of bronze, which really they weighed. There wasn't much uniformity in shape or purity, but they, they had scales to weigh them. And they'd use that to have money. But it wasn't until the 7th century BCE when we came to something which we'd recognize as money, as standardized coins. And this happened in Lydia, which is in um, modern-day sort of Western Turkey. At that point, the King Croesus they had made some major innovations in technologies related to metallurgical and, and minting processes. And they came up with standardized gold coins. And, and really, gold coins, coins in general, haven't changed a whole lot since then and have been used continuously since the 7th century BCE. Okay, so that presumably was money 1.0. What was money 2.0? Well, I think the next big innovation occurred in China. And to some extent, what we're seeing with the digital world, that innovation is also in China. Initially, that happened around 7th century AD. They called it flying money because it tended to get swept away by the wind. Though it didn't really take off until the 13th century. And it was something that was well reported from by Marco Polo on his visits, you know, recording his visits to Asia. But paper money, which I think would be 2.0, took off initially in China and then spread to Europe. Europe was a couple of centuries behind. And it wasn't really until the late 17th century that the Bank of England had paper money in Europe, and it's it certainly been issuing paper money since then. Initially, the paper money was issued by commercial banks, supervised by the state, and then over time, that process has been taken over by the state, and, and more recently by central banks to supervise and manage that process. So, yeah, it, it's an interesting progression. We, we were talking about beforehand that you started with basically physical things, you know, like rice or shells, whatever, and then metals, which seem to, for some reason, humans think they have this intrinsic value, like a lump of gold or a lump of 
copper or whatever that that they think is worth something, they're, or they're all willing to believe that it's worth something when they deal with each other. And then the next innovation was this idea that well, you can just have this piece of paper that says, you know, here this is worth this is worth what X. But at the beginning and for a long time, it seems like people only were willing to accept that if they felt that they could convert it into the real stuff, you know, the gold, the copper, whatever. So now we're talking about what, what's going on in the modern world is we've moved away from paper money that's backed by something to, you know, what has come to be known as fiat currency, which is just paper. <laughs> you can't really convert it to anything. You can't go to the to a bank and say, you know, give me $10 worth of gold for this $10 bill. You can only get, you know, two fives or <laughs> five and five singles. That's all. You can get more paper. You know, it's it's a fascinating thing, this whole idea of what constitutes money, because it really is just something that we all agree we will accept as money that we will, you know, if you want to, if I've made something like a car and you want to buy it from me, uh, we all have to live in a, a world where we all agree that, yes, we will we will accept these pieces of paper in exchange for real things like, you know, or, or services. So now we're, we seem to be on the verge of, you know, as you say, money 3.0, where we're, we're even doing away with the paper. So talk about, you know, money 3.0. Yeah, just, just on what you're saying. So money is definitely a social construct and money is whatever we agree it to be. You know, the state is behind it and it used to be, you know, the sword of the state was behind it. Now we have the, the legal system behind it. But to a large extent, I think this just echoes what's happening throughout the economy as the process becomes digitized, as the digital economy swallows up the world. I think, say, an analog in, in the musical world used to be if you want to listen to music, you know, 150 or 200 years ago, you'd go down the pub, or you'd go to a concert hall to listen. Then 150 years ago, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph. Afterwards, Marconi invented the radio. Then we had cassette CDs, and now we have streaming. Music is digital. The on-ramp is physical because you're still in a recording studio, and the off-ramp is physical, goes in your ear. But the rest of the music process is digital, and we seem to be fine with it. Books, to some extent, have gone through the same process, and we like our Kindles and our audiobooks, and that's digital. With money is what's happening in so many parts of the economy. Often we have an on-ramp and off-ramp that's in the physical world, but the rest of what's happening is in the digital world, the virtual world. And that's not necessarily that new to the the money economy. Much of the money economy has been digital in some sense for about 100 years now. Well, it's certainly true that, you know, uh, when I think about my day-to-day life, I, I almost never use coins or bills anymore and haven't for years. Uh, you know, when I get paid, it just shows up in my bank account. It's an electronic entry. When I, I pay most of my bills, you know, I don't I don't even write checks anymore, you know, which which is just another piece of paper. But it's just all electronic transfers from one account to another, my account to somebody else's account. There's very little you know, we haven't really been using physical cash for quite a while. But now we're yeah. talking about something that um, things like Bitcoin, you know, the Ethereum, people are, are familiar with these digital currencies. But, you know, they don't even have, there. there is no physical equivalent for any of these things. It's purely yeah. digital. But tell us, what, yeah. is, what is the difference? Like, what is really the next, what does that mean, the, the next step to go from just, well, you know, I'm transferring dollars from my account to your account to there being an actual, quote, digital currency? Yeah, when we're conceptualizing this, I think it's helpful to think about two different economies, the wholesale economy 
and the, the retail economy, the economy that the consumers and businesses deal with. With the, the wholesale economy or the interbank market, 100 years ago, that was still settled with physical delivery of cash or in gold. But actually starting in the 1920s, so a long time ago, the Fed actually set up a digital system. So this has been digital a long time. Initially, it was based on telegraph networks using Morse code. Over decades, it became more modern, particularly from the 70s. Um, the system's been upgraded. It now runs on the, the public Fedwire system in conjunction with a system that's run by a large group of commercial banks. It's called the Clearinghouse Payment System. But now the, the wholesale market, the interbank market's entirely digital and is run sort of as a type of public-private partnership. In some sense, I think this is where we're going for the retail market, which which is quite a different animal and until recently still had quite a large physical component. Coins and notes we can think of being as central bank physical currency as distinct from central bank digital currency, which is what we're trying to talk about. But the the public physical currency, it's being crowded out by private digital money. And you mentioned private digital currencies, but there's also private digital money so, for example, if you take out a bank loan to buy a house, you're doing that with private digital money through a bank, commercial bank. If you finance a car through Toyota, Toyota lease, uh, that's private digital money. If you go out for dinner and you pay with Visa or MasterCard, uh, you're paying with private digital money, similar with PayPal, Venmo, Apple Pay, uh, Alipay, and so on. And so we're now to the point where private digital money represents 95% of consumer transactions in the U.S. We have a chart in the paper that shows that. And it's probably going to be quite close to 100% by the end of this decade. If you think about the broad money supply that's circulated, probably 98.5% of that is private digital money, with only 1.5% actually being public physical currency, so notes and coins and things like that. So the wholesale digital market led this change to sort of a public-private partnership with digital money. We're now seeing this happen in the retail market, and it puts central banks in a very uncomfortable position because they could become irrelevant. It looks like that way, but they still have statutory responsibilities to ensure an efficient payment system, to promote financial stability, price stability, full employment, and all these things. But the position of the economy is certainly becoming marginalized and will continue to be marginalized if they stick with public physical money and don't go the digital route. Okay. So so what are they doing? How are they reacting? Well, central banks so they are reacting by doing a lot of work on this move to digital currencies. So to some extent, there will still be, I think at least for a few years, maybe maybe longer, there will still be public physical currencies, but increasingly it will be a public digital currency. And and that certainly is necessary for lots of reasons. I mentioned the disappearance of physical currency being replaced by private digital money. You mentioned, mentioned the rise of private digital currencies, Bitcoin, but probably more important, what really scares people is the Facebook-sponsored Libra or DM project, which is focused on stable coins and can take advantage of enormous network effects, given they have billions of active users. And that's something important. And then the third thing scaring is China is very advanced 
with their digital currency. And that could be a, a launch as early as next February during the Winter Olympics in Beijing in February. So this is all happening. Central banks know that they need to change. And so they are coming up with their designs. But actually coming up with the designs, it won't be one size fits all. And there's still a lot of issues about the advantages of them, the disadvantages, and what is the correct design. You know, and the correct design for the United States will be very different than that for Europe versus China and so on. We certainly won't have one size fits all. And, and really, in, in most aspects of, of any part of the economy, there is a lot of variation from region to region. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of those those architecture issues because I do think they're they're interesting. Like you mentioned in the paper, the difference between you know an account structure versus a token structure. Yeah, I'm, I'm presuming that you know like Bitcoin is a token, you know, kind of yeah. currency. Yeah, and of course, it's come under a lot of criticism because it is so energy intensive to run the computers yeah. to do all the solving all the mathematical problems that are involved in verifying the ledger, the continuous, the distributed ledger of blockchain blockchain ledger for for Bitcoin, but digital currencies don't have to work that way. So tell us about the, the other possibilities. Yeah, so private digital money is account-based. So for example, the, the private money, digital money you have at your bank, that's based on an account, which means it's tied to your identity. It can be in a digital wallet or an account, but that's account-based. Bitcoin is token-based, which means it's not tied to your identity. You just have to demonstrate ownership of the token through some type of here or something, actually cash, physical notes, coins, they're also tokens. They're not a tied to identity. You just have to demonstrate you own it. And typically the way you demonstrate ownership is by taking it out of your wallet and putting it in your hand. But they're they're analogs to tokens as well. And so it's not clear which way people will be going. And and I think Central banks are watching very closely some of the more advanced experiments, certainly in China and Sweden and some other places to see which route people are going. But sometimes we, we get this feeling, well, there's only one way to do this, but there's lots of ways to do this. And there's, you know, there's lots of ways to do physical money. You can have different colors, different material. You can have the polymers in Canada. You can have pictures of different people, different denominations. So we will get lots of different money, and it will evolve over time as people experiment and as the technology evolves. So account-based or token-based, certainly going account-based is easier at first because that's what we're used to, but there are some advantages of token-based. One real disadvantage of token-based, we mentioned the paper, is it's estimated that about 20% of Bitcoins that have been issued over the last 12 years have just been lost because people lost their keys and they can't find them. They can't demonstrate their identity anymore. So that's going to be an issue, particularly if these become widespread use. There's an issue as to whether the currency would be run on a decentralized permissionless blockchain like Bitcoin is, or some type of more centralized ledger like China is using. The reality is central banks are going to have to have some type of permission structure and some type of centralization, but exactly how that occurs isn't clear. And there's also a question whether the Fed, for example, whether it's going to be a banker's bank as it is now, so just issues reserves to commercial banks, or whether it's going to be a people's bank and that different households and businesses will all have accounts at the Fed 
and the Fed will put money directly into those accounts. So there's lots of design issues people are trying to to reconcile. But my, my guess is this will be a work in process, I would think, for decades as our understanding how these things work evolves and certainly as the technology progresses. Well, I mean, that brings up a big issue. Certainly one of the key effects or side effects, of if you had a, a system where people had accounts directly with the Fed, as, as opposed to having an account at a commercial bank, you know, it disintermediates the commercial banks to some extent. So deposits are traditionally been one of their big sources of uh, funds for which they then lend out. You know, they create credit and lend out. And if you take them out of that process, it's going to have an effect on the commercial banking industry, presumably. Yes. So you could have a situation and say that each household and business had an account at the Fed. So the money money goes in that way, in the same way that the Fed currently puts reserves into the banking system. But then people could take the money from their Fed account to their account at a commercial bank or a digital wallet they had with PayPal or some type of other fintech type company. So they could do that. So there's there's lots of ways to manage that. But regardless, it could be that commercial banks are no longer getting most of their funding through deposits. So they would have to be getting at least more money through, you know, more funding through money markets. And that structure would change. And, and that could affect some of their spreads. There's also an issue if we had a recession or a financial crisis, you could have a digital bank run in the sense that everyone would prefer then to have their the money in their account on the central bank balance sheet rather than a commercial bank balance sheet. Because even if the commercial banks are insured through FDIC, there's certainly more risk there than there would be on the Fed balance sheet because the Fed is certainly never going to go bankrupt given that it can, it can always print, so-called print. It, it can create more digital money. So it does create challenges for commercial banks. And it does look like some commercial banks are recognizing these challenges and moving quickly with them. But it also seems like other commercial banks are dragging their heels to some extent, sort of hoping, well, let's wait and see how this evolves. And the danger with that, as we've seen with many activities in the digital economy, things can happen quickly and, and more quickly than they, people expect. So I think you really do have to make sure that your infrastructure, whether you're a commercial bank or a fintech player or different type of market players, that you're ready for this process to happen. And, and obviously, you're going to have to be flexible because nobody can really forecast how and when this occurs, but it is going to occur. And I think it will be a competitive advantage or disadvantage for some firms in the commercial banking or fintech space, how prepared they are for these changes. Okay, so in the paper you talk about, you know, advantages and disadvantages of, of central bank digital currencies. And one of the advantages is something that, you know, sounds too good to be true. It's like the, the dream of economists, which is no more recessions. So talk about how you think, uh, why would it be the case that central bank digital currencies would enable us to theoretically, perhaps, you know, never have another recession again? So in the paper, we, we talk about three advantages of central bank digital currencies. The first one we mentioned is the payment system and settlement system become more efficient. And that's really true with the legacy systems. They're slow, they're expensive, especially for international payments. And it's particularly on and off ramps from the payment system, sort of the first and last mile that often we talk about where the physical economy meets the digital economy. 
that does need a lot of work. So that's one potential advantage. A second is financial inclusion. And it really is mind-boggling. In America, there's 14 million adults who don't have bank accounts. And, and that's just crazy, particularly when we're in a situation now where 95% of consumer transactions occur with private digital money. 14 million people don't have bank accounts. They're just not part of the digital economy. And that's totally, I, I would think, unacceptable. And obviously, there's other ways to do this than through a central bank digital currency. But this has to be a public policy issue. The third advantage we talk about is the one that you mentioned, is the possibility to prevent recession. And say, for example, we get into recession because of something like what happened in 2020 or what happened in 2008. What central banks typically do then is they cut interest rates. And they hope, well, I'm going to cut interest rates, and that's going to increase spending either by households or by firms, and this is going to get us out of this mess. And sometimes you also do QE, but QE mainly occurs through financial markets and and the wholesale markets. Now, the point is that instead of moving interest rates and hoping that's going to affect spending, what you can do is affect spending directly, is if households and businesses have accounts with the central bank, you can put money into those accounts, and you can target it to specific regions or sectors of the economy or people who need the help most with spending. And you can also put a time limit on the money. You can say this money is going to expire in one month. And in some structures, and these structures exist, for example, in China now, you can also say this money has to be sent in certain types of stores. For example, they have to be sent at a grocery store or some type of clothing store and so on. So you you have an awful lot of ability to direct spending, and spending is going to happen, and it's going to occur quickly. So this you know, this is something which has been in the realm of theory. When when I was in graduate school in economics, you know, we would talk about in our models. But with this type of structure, it's close to reality. And I think it's in reality in some of the experiments they've done in China. And what we've been seeing with the different government programs, we've had three government programs related to the COVID recession. And they've all had aspects of this. And uh, I think the third one has been much more efficient than the, the first two. And with the first one, you've had about 90% of the money in accounts within a couple of weeks. Most of it's been saved or used to pay down debt. Only about a third has actually been spent. So it has worked well. But with central bank digital currencies and households businesses having accounts at the central bank, that process would become much more direct you can imagine there's ways in which people being people, strange things could happen, people could take more risk, but it's an interesting possibility. And in the paper, we, we sort of mention a bit tongue-in-cheek, you know, the end of recession, but that is a possibility. Uh, okay, well, I look forward to uh, one day having to explain to my grandchildren what, what a recession was. <laughs> so we've talked about some advantages. Just to balance it out, let's, let's discuss some of the disadvantages. I mean, one of them I th- in the paper is the possible negative effects on, on the commercial banking system. But another, a big one, I think, and one that to me seems like an actual implementation hurdle is all about privacy. I mean, I, you know, this all sounds very sensible and so forth, but, you know, you know, we live in a country where there's you know, a large percentage of people who like they're never going to open an account at the Fed. They don't trust the Fed, that kind of thing. How are you, you know, how are you going to get people to go along with this? And, you know, you mentioned in the paper, for example, possibly 
one day actually eliminating currency, just like saying it's it's not valid anymore, those those notes and coins, and you can only use digital currency. And that, that would be a way, for example, for the central bank to implement negative interest rates, that they would just start taking away money from you in the form of a negative interest rate. And, you know, that to me, that's something people are not going to be happy about. So talk a bit about some of the privacy implications and, and some of the implementation hurdles. Yeah, so we have two models we know a fair amount about now. One one is China. And what China's been saying is that the central bank will actually have access to a lot of information in terms of what businesses and individuals are doing. But the banks will, in some sense, and the businesses are aware of the money is being spent will have less information. So there'll be some anonymity in the Chinese system, but it won't be anonymous from the perspective of the central bank and the state in China. So this is China. I don't think that system would work in Western democracies, but that's the system China's going with. The Swedish system, which is also quite far along in terms of planning, they put together a host of safeguards to make sure the central bank and hence the state does not have information that still, there would still remain a high degree of anonymity and probably a similar degree of anonymity to what we have now. And, and that's been really a focal point, and, and the, the Riksbank in Sweden has put a, a lot of focus to make sure of this. And I think people in Sweden would probably have similar concerns to Americans or, or people in the UK or Canada about this. So when this happens, there will be a lot of measures to ensure there is a high degree of anonymity, and that's very important. But the way that's treated, I think, will vary from place to place. America, it's a very big issue. I think most Western democracies, it's a very big issue. Places like China, it's less of an issue. In other countries, they'll, they'll have, I think, different ways to trade off privacy concerns. Uh, well, to, to wrap up, is there, what, what sort of roadmap should we be looking for? What, what should we expect to see over the next couple of years as this rolls out? I think one thing we've learned with the, the digital economy that swallowed the world and keeps swallowing different sectors is it is impossible to predict when or what is going to be coming. It's very difficult to forecast things two years, five years, or further out. But we do know short-term, there's the Winter Olympics in Beijing in February of next year. That's a potential launch date. We know lots of countries are, are working in this area. And one thing we've learned from the digitization of different parts of the economy is this can happen more quickly than people expect and is very important for players in the sectors that are going to be directly affected, either central banks, commercial banks, or fintech companies, or even lots of different types of businesses, to be ready for when it happens. And I've met a lot of people who, are, I would say complacent, they think this is going to take five years, 10 years, maybe decades for it to occur. I, I think they're going to be surprised by how quickly this process transpires. Okay. Well, thanks for joining me, Kevin. And it, again, we've been talking about a paper that Kevin wrote with Bill Priest called Money 3.0, Central Bank Digital Currencies. You can find it on our website at www.eipny.com. Thanks for listening. And again, if you enjoyed the episode, please uh, give us a, a good review or a, a rating, hopefully five-star rating at wherever you get this podcast. And we'll be back again with another episode soon. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. 
The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.